welcome back welcome back welcome back welcome back to what was media episode two zero she got a lot of energy today she's ready to cut up and act full annabelle i missed you i missed you too babe <laughs> you're in houston you made your move you have a new studio we are ready to go a new studio a new podcast studio. By that, I mean your dining room table, but it is in a different place, so it is still a new studio. It's new to me. There's a new background. You don't see my kitchen anymore. You see my cabinet. cabinet. Yes, very nice. And gems and stones and whatnot, because she a real witch out here. Oh, yeah, witchy poo. Witchy poo. Oh, I miss this. <laughs> <laughs> What are we doing today, Annabelle? Okay, so I got two stories. Um, one of them might actually break our hearts, but the first one is about the opioid settlement that is on the table for a lot of money for pretty much every state. So we're gonna talk about that. This is separate from the Purdue Pharma story that we talked about several weeks ago. Um, obviously related, because they're both in the opioid crisis topic, but they are different settlements, different people involved. And my second story is about uh, Jay Powell potentially not being in power and not having a job anymore. So no! we're scared, but we're going to get into that and we'll see what's going to happen. What you got, Alyssa? First, I have to recover for a second there because I don't know if I can handle that story. Oh, a world without Jay Powell. I don't know if that's a world I want to live in. My tissues. Okay, so today we're going the future of entertainment versus the past of entertainment. And I want you to join me on this road as we talk about one of my favorites, newest single out this week. And we're gonna talk about his newest music video and its commentary on not only the prison system, but the music industry. Okay, that's exciting. And sadly, we have lost a, a wonderful comedian. Um, Jackie Mason passed away this week, and I know many people may not be familiar with Jackie Mason, but if you're interested at all in the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, I feel like you might be able to draw some parallels and, you know, do some research on your own and see if you find more old-timey comedians that you might be interested in. All right. My hair club. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're starting off we're going back to the courtroom because back in march of 2021 a little song dropped and it took the world by storm i don't know if you've heard of it annabelle it's called montero aka call me by your name Lisa, I've been jamming out to it all week. Have you really? Yes, and we talked about this a few months ago and the, the controversy with the music video and the religious imagery that was in it. Well, don't worry, we're gonna do a follow-up on that. So Ooh. in March of 2021, following the release of the Montero Call Me By Your Name music video by Lil Nas X, he announced that he was going to do a collaboration with the art collective MSCHF which I found does not stand for anything that I could figure out. Random consonants. I'll yeah, exactly. You know, 
Um, and they were going to design a pair of shoes that came to be known as the Satan shoes. Oh, okay. Are you familiar? With the Satan shoes? Yeah. You They're not red bottoms, are they? You haven't heard anything about this? No. Oh my gosh. Okay, so hold on. I gotta do something. What was I supposed to do without podcasting for two weeks? That's the only way I learned anything about pop culture. <laughs> so the Satan shoes were a series of custom Nike Air Max 97 shoes created once again, like I said, in a collaboration between Little Nas X and MSCHF. And the design and marketing gained a lot of controversy through prominent satanic imagery. Like the shoe is like pure black and it has a pentagram on the like oh. lace. Okay, they are double shoes. Oh, oh, it, it gets worse. Um, not gets worse, but it gets more controversial, I should say, because the, <laughs> the shoes were supposedly um, injected, I guess you could say, with 60 cc's of ink and one drop of human blood each pair. <gasps> okay. Human blood in this. Wow. Yes. And there were also like references to like specific Bible verses on the shoes and whatnot. So obviously Nike was like, I don't know if we want to be involved in this. So Nike Inc. filed a lawsuit against this art collective and Lil Nas X because of the the Satan shoe. And they settled in April, but on July 16th, which was recently, Lil Nas X posted a TikTok claiming that he had an upcoming court hearing on July 19th. And everybody was like, the Satan shoe controversy isn't over yet. <gasps> Sorry. There were drops of human blood in these shoes. Like, I, how many virgins did they have to sacrifice? I, we never said it had to be virgin blood. Well, I know, but that's usually the running thing, is it not? True. Yeah, you're right. Sacrifice the virgins, yeah. It was also like, I, I'm still not sure if anyone ever got a pair of these shoes. Like, I don't know if they were just like a creative concept that people came up with like I don't know if they were actually produced yeah. so this could have just been a ploy like I obviously need to do more research but the Satan shoes are not what we're focusing on today this was just a uh, a lead-in to what we're focusing on so this court hearing that he spoke of was actually turned out to be a teaser for his newest music video for his song industry baby industry baby okay. industry baby and the teaser video features a lawsuit type parody like Lil Nas is in court and he plays multiple characters like he plays himself obviously he plays the judge he plays the like lawyers involved like it's very what's the word it's it's very like all that kind of thing and Keenan and Kel like everybody's playing everybody and it starts out the court hearing is obviously about the Satan shoes, but quickly it turns into, oh, he's just doing this because he's gay and gay people are the devil. Blah, 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 blah. And when this teaser dropped, there actually was accompanied by a website and Lil Nas X made it clear from the beginning that this new song was not for children mm -hmm. because we see where that got him last time. I'm not yeah. blaming him. You yeah. know, artists have a right to distribute what kind of music they have and obviously it's you know not to get on my soapbox but some nope. parents not all but some parents, like, <laughs> some parents not all like to believe that 
entertainment and pop culture are meant to parent their children for them. And when they teach them things that don't necessarily align with their values, they get angry at the entertainment people, not themselves, you know, because obviously it's never their fault. Anyways, so in late June, a demo version of this song was leaked, but no features were included. And once again, Lil Nas shared a letter addressed to himself ahead of the official music video dropping. And this one was to his 20-year-old counterpart, not necessarily like Montero was more like his preteen teenager self. Mm -hmm. And in the letter, he just says, you know, this is for us. I made a song for us. And one of the quotes I enjoyed from it was, quote, I need you to realize that you have the opportunity to be the person that you needed growing up. I need you to stop feeling sorry for yourself. And I need you to remember that the only person who has to believe in you is you. you. Mm-hmm. Good advice. I love that. He also wrote about the stagnation that was brought along to his career during COVID-19, as well as his sexuality ostracization and staying strong in the face of adversity to be around for his future successes. So now we're going to get into the actual music video. It picks up where the teaser left off with Lil Nas X being sentenced to five years in prison for being homosexual. How dare he? How dare he? And it like zooms in on his face and he's like, what am I going to do? I'm not going to make it in prison. Hard cut to three months later. He is afforded full body tattoos, blue contacts, and a new grill in his prison cell. Okay. <laughs> I was like, okay, you got all of this in three months. Yeah. You're allowed to bring that grill in. They didn't confiscate it. Prison. <laughs> oh, it's also worth noting that the uh, prison that he sentenced to is Montero State Prison. Mm-hmm. Yes. A little, little Easter egg. Just a little bit. And the next scene you see is him polishing his Grammys that he was also allowed to bring to his cell. Okay. Well, that's nice of them to let him take his Grammys into prison. I <laughs> Literally, I wrote down, I love that they let him bring them for cell decor. Seriously, though. <laughs> um, this is the gayest prison I have ever seen in any type of execution or pop culture portrayal and I want to be invited I don't necessarily want to be booked into this jail but you know I'd like to come by for a little visit you know see how my friend Lil Nas is doing Mm -hmm. um the most famous scene that has arisen from this music video is one in which Lil Nas is dancing in the showers with a full group of backup dancers and they're all nude nice And obviously it's pixelated. So they're not like, they're not actually nude. They're definitely just wearing some skin colored skivvies. So, Mm -hmm. but it's like iconic imagery, you could say. Like it's the thumbnail for the video. It's the only thing people seem to be talking about when it, like when it's brought up. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. I loved him. It then cuts to him. He's in the prison yard, you know, lifting weights with all the other prisoners. And he has these like, um, I don't know what they're called, like curl up weights. And all of a sudden he starts shooting <laughs> with the weights in hand. Shooting? You, you know, like the, the shoot dance. Oh, we the, the, the horsey kick? Huh? The horsey kick? Yes. Yeah, that. <laughs> okay, I call it the horsey kick. I actually didn't know it was called the shoot. shoot. I was like, where did he get a gun? Was that in the grill somewhere? Where did that come from? He said he went from having a weight to a gun. What? 
And then um, I'll get into my favorite lyrics later, but as he's shooting with the weight in his hand, which is a very impressive feat, like I can barely do the shoot with nothing in my hands. I can't do it at all, so. But <laughs> he throws the weight down and the the lyric that plays is, I don't F bitches, I'm gay. And he does the little like wrist flick movement. <laughs> And I'm just like, yes. I should mention too that all the prisoners are wearing hot pink uniforms at this prison. I love, like, I just, once again, I'm going to get on my soapbox really quick. I love people like Lil Nas X who are allowing themselves to be openly and unapologetically queer in a hip hop and rap industry because it's needed. It's not like he's the first gay um rapper in the game he may be one of the first openly gay rappers in the scene but that doesn't mean that they never existed before he or frank ocean came along i was gonna say something else but i'm not i'm not trying to get sued so (laughs) okay (laughs) i'll tell you later um we'll talk offline yeah exactly um and jack harlow shows up do you know who jack harlow is I don't actually. I didn't either. Literally when he showed up, I was like, is that Logic? Did he get a perm? Like what's going on? Cause Logic is like the only white rapper that I can think of in the game right now. But I Jack Harlow shows up and he like slides Lil Nas the book of Montero, which the imagery on the front of the book is mimicking his son goes down single cover where he looks like the avatar, you know, like he's um, hovering in the air and he's like got like lights in his eyes I, are you looking it up I will <laughs> I heard din, din, din. um and in this book there is a wep- a weapon or a tool of some sort so he can start like burying his way out the major theme of this um music video is the Shawshank Redemption obviously because it's a prison break story but what I loved about this is um, one of the most iconic images from the Shawshank Redemption is the tunnel out of the jail cell and it's covered by a Rita Hayworth movie poster because the original story that the Shawshank Redemption is based off of is actually called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Oh really? I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Fun fact, which if you don't know who Rita Hayworth is or what she looks like, Go ahead and do yourself a favor and Google her because she's honestly one of the most stunning individuals to ever walk the face of this earth. But anyways, what I loved about this was instead of like a picture of like Rita Hayworth or a stereotypical like busty, beautiful woman, he has a poster from his BET performance. Do you do you remember that happening? Mm-mm. Okay, so about a month ago, Lil Nas performed at the BET Awards and he was dressed like in this Egyptian garb with all these other dancers around him. And out of nowhere, he starts making out with like two of his dancers and it was really hot. But obviously, you know, it's the BET Awards. There are gonna be some people in the audience that may not necessarily align with his views. And he caught a lot of shit for that. And, but I just, out of nowhere, I just saw that image and I was like, yes, the F the haters. And then he goes tunneling and all of a sudden we cut to a security guard that's like monitoring all the cameras and guess who it is? Who is it? 
It's Colton Haynes from Teen Wolf and Arrow. What? That's random. Right. Well, he's also a very uh, openly gay actor, but I was just like, Colton Haynes is here? Yeah. (laughs) And he's actually watching on his own phone the Montero music video. So it's very like oh, you want to punish me for being openly gay, but you're going to go and get your rocks off to that right. on your own. So it's like, screw you, dude. Mm-hmm. And Lil Nas like breaks into his office, punches him in the face and lets everybody go. Like there's a prison break. And we go back to Jack Harlow, who once again, I thought was logic with a curl job. And he's like rapping about how people didn't believe in him either. And he's like, making out with like a female prison guard I don't really I didn't really I don't have anything against him I just didn't really care for his part of the video um I do want to know why his white Kentucky bluegrass ass is referencing boomer sooner and his lyrics though that's a good question I do I was like out of all the darn schools that could have gotten a shout out you choose Oklahoma the one that's trying to join our conference right get away <laughs> How dare you? And then we get a prison yard dance break a la Paddington 2. And once again, this is going to wrap it up. Uh, But the music video also introduced Lil Nas X's newest partnership with the Bail Project um, through the Bail X Fund. And for those of you who may not be familiar, the Bail Project is a nonprofit raising money and awareness with the goal of paying bail for those who are not financially capable of doing it themselves. Good. They also provide pre-trial services. And as of the filming of this episode, the music video has raised $41,249. Very nice. For the Bail Project. So yay for them. And to wrap this segment up, I just wanted to go down a list of some of my favorite lyrics from Industry Baby. Mm-hmm. Let's start off with the um, one of the most prominent ones, which was, quote, funny how you said it was the end. Then I went and did it again. Obviously, everybody expected him to be a one-hit wonder with something like Old Town Road because Old Town Road is one of those songs. It's it's fun and it's catchy and obviously it went viral. So when it's so incredulous, like it's not just like a normal, like here, I'm going to play the guitar and sing about my tragedies. Mm-hmm. Many people expect the more crazy and outlandish content to be a one-hit wonder. And I love that he's like throwing it in their faces like, aha. I'm still here. Um, once again, going back to his um, his horsey dance for Annabelle, the line is, quote, I don't F bitches, I'm queer. My track record's so clean, they couldn't wait to bash me. Okay. Once again, he has done nothing. Well, I don't want to say nothing because we, you know, we have, we don't know everything about these celebrities' personal lives. But so far in the public eye, Little Nas is a very uncontroversial figure. Like he doesn't do anything he keeps to himself. Like everything that people have criticized him for are things that he's doing, you know, to himself and by himself. They're never, you know, outreaching to a different like demographic. He's never hurting anyone else. So it's pretty unproblematic. Exactly. In that way. Yes. So I really liked that line. Um, this is one of Jack Harlow's lines. Uh, I sent her back to her boyfriend with my handprint on her ass cheek. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And like, 
obviously I was watching the music video when I first heard the song and the female guard that he was like making out with, she turned around and I was like, what happened to her butt? And then he sang like, oh, she got her handprint on my ass cheek. And I was like, oh, <laughs> cause it's very red. It looked like, I was like, baby girl, you need to get something for that. That looked dangerous. Yeah. Why are you giving her a five star? Ow. All right. And the last line that I really enjoyed was just one that I personally could relate to the most. And it said, I didn't peak in high school. I'm still out here getting cuter. I love that one. I do too. Because I, I look like crap in high school and I'm just getting cuter by the minute. And so are you. <laughs> Cheers to that. That's all I have on the Never peaking too early. I'm never peaking too early. And honestly, sorry, I'm going to end on this. I don't believe in the idea of peaking. I feel that if you are a truly successful individual, there is never a peak in your life or your career or whatever you deem successful. I feel that there is always room for improvement. And I feel that both me and Annabelle fit that mold. So cheers, babe. Oh, yes. We drink our lemon water. Buble, sponsor us. Yeah, I think uh, peaking is kind of a dated concept. It, it makes sense in like certain contexts, like um, my hometown. Well, I was going to say in athletes, like a lot of, you know, gymnasts, they peak, like they reach their peak talent when they're like young. And that's why you see so many young gymnasts except Simone Biles, because she's the goat. She could probably be like 60 out there flipping on everybody. And, you know, not that she should have to do that because she's already proved herself. But um, yeah, anyway, so. <laughs> Thank you for that, Alyssa. That was a good, good recap of the video. I enjoyed that. I'll have to go watch. Will it traumatize me? No, honestly, it's very like, I don't want, I don't want to use the phrase like I've seen worse, but like, I didn't think it was triggering at all. Like there's a lot of like booty shaking in it. And that personally does not trigger me. So yeah, yeah. sounds good to me. All right. So my first story is called Never Settle. Yeah. But in this case, maybe you should settle. Anyway, <laughs> we'll get into it. Um, so the opioid companies, many of which have been a huge factor in this opioid epidemic that we've been going through as a country, they have agreed to pay $26 billion collectively to opioid victims. This is the second biggest legal settlement in US history. So this is a pretty big deal. It's a lot of money to kind of settle up with, but there are a lot of victims. So it should be a lot of money. Yeah. Um, there are over 3,000 civil cases right now that are out there of people trying to get, you know, some compensation for having this really aggressive marketing that on this very addictive product. So that's why these companies have decided that they're okay with settling because, you know, they, they admit no wrongdoing, of course. Of course not. Oh, we didn't do anything. No. Okay, but you're not trying to negotiate lower either, so tea i don't know but um anyway when this news came out the drug company stocks actually rose which is interesting because i guess investors weren't surprised stockholders of these companies figured there was going to be probably a settlement company coming and a lot of the companies actually put money away for it i guess they had a rainy day fund for if we get sued we're going to put some extra cash in here like a few billion and that ended up being a, a smart move because each company is going to have to put up a, a few billion to kind of contribute to the settlement. 
Um, and as we know, the opioid epidemic right now is really bad. Since 2020, there have been over 73,000 opioid overdoses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a big number. Um, and the pandemic has obviously exacerbated this because people are home all the time. And, you know, a lot of people were probably in a weakened mental state and maybe, you know, succumb to things like that a little bit more easily, mm-hmm. um, like the use of the drugs. And there have been 500,000 American overdose death overdose deaths since the late 1990s so that's a pretty hollow or a very like humbling number to hear about half a million people dying from drug overdoses um and distributors we obviously know that they kind of downplayed all the addictive qualities of opioids and they were just really trying to get absurd quantities out on the market just so they can make a lot of money on it there were stories about tiny towns in backwoods kentucky getting hundreds of thousands of doses when they don't have the population to sustain. Jack Harlow, where are you at? Yeah, right. So they don't have the population to sustain that type of volume on opioids, meaning they would all go to a small group of people. Um, So that's obviously bad. Um, And it was just really irresponsible marketing, trying to get it out at that high of a level. Um, And as I said, there are 3,000 civil lawsuits right now out there for all the victims trying to get compensation for this. But with this $26 billion settlement, they're kind of all getting rolled into one mega settlement for all of the victims. And with this particular group, there are four drug companies kind of involved in this. So this does not include Purdue Pharmaceuticals and the Sackler family, which is what we talked about a few weeks ago. They have their own problem with it because they did Oxycontin, but there are of course other opioids that have been a part of this. so the drug companies that are involved in this particular settlement are Johnson & Johnson, McKesson Corporation, um, Amerisource Virgin, which is kind of a long company name, and then Cardinal Health is the fourth one. Okay. Um, so Purdue is you know, doing their own settlement right now with um, the Sackler family and declaring bankruptcy and all that. Um, so, But what kind of sucks about this settlement as it did with the Purdue settlement is guess who really gets paid at the end of this? The lawyers. Yeah, the lawyers, more so than the victims. So about 10% of the settlement, 2.5 billion, will end up going to the lawyers for all of the legal costs for all 3,000 cases involved. Um, So that's obviously a big chunk that's not going to end up trickling down to any victims, which is unfortunate. And like I said, the drug companies still are not admitting any wrongdoing. And I guess they anticipated a settlement was coming. So they have kind of been stashing away money to put on it. So it didn't really make a big impact on their balance sheet, which was good for investors. Um, But, you know, a little gross, honestly, to hear about um, that they knew that this was coming and they didn't really care. They just kind of put away their money for it. so all companies kind of, I guess, were advised ahead of time legally with like an estimate of what they were going to end up owing. And that's kind of how they were able to stash that away. But when the money does end up getting awarded, it will go into state and local funds to kind of aid addiction victims, like with treatment centers and programs and stuff like that. Um, and it'll be paid over 17 to 18 years, which while that's a lot of money, and I guess companies are not expected to throw all that in right now and it's not expected to like hit the victims all at one time 
it still sucks that it's going to take that long, 17 to 18 years to fully pay out the 26 billion. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'll go to state and local governments, obviously, like for the addiction treatment. But um, the governments that are involved, which is pretty much everybody at this point, they still have to decide if they want to accept the settlement. They always have the option to say no and try and continue to fight for more. But obviously, as we've said, the lawyers are really the ones who <laughs> are profiting the most off of this. So sometimes it is in this situation good to settle. Um, trials are still continuing against some other pharmaceutical companies apart from these four. Um, Teva Pharmaceuticals, if you've ever heard of them, mm-hmm. Indo International, and Abbey Inc. So they're kind of still dealing with this as well. They're not part of the 26 billion. And a quick update on the Purdue pharmaceutical settlement here. Um, So the bankruptcy deal has been reached. They kind of had a big breakthrough where a lot of states who previously were going to oppose the plan, they've kind of accepted it now and they support it. So a judge just kind of has to make the final call on August 9th, so in the next couple of weeks here, about whether or not he's going to accept it, but he's expected to accept it. Mm -hmm. Um, But all parties in this big four settlement of the 26 billion, all parties excluding Johnson and Johnson. They also settled with the state of New York for a billion dollars because that was expected to be a very lengthy and expensive trial. So they kind of just took New York out of the equation early because obviously with their massive population size, the victims were on a larger scale there than maybe some other states. So they settled to kind of get out of that trial on the national level um, and have already paid 1 billion to New York addiction um, facilities and treatment centers and stuff like that. Um, and one important thing to note is it's not like each person who suffered from opioid addiction or if their family outlived them or something like that. It's not like these people are getting direct deposits from the drug companies for, you know, getting help. Um, the money goes into kind of the government's pockets with the intent that it would flow through the local healthcare system. Um, and help people who have addictions or prevent addictions and things like that, which hopefully, you know, each government does a good job of getting the aid to the people who need it and getting it to them quickly. But we all know how things can be at the government level and it's not always as fast as we would like. There's a lot of red tape and a lot of bureaucracy. So I think there's some good takeaways from this case for sure, because victims are, you know, kind of getting their day in court and they're going to get some help but it is unfortunate kind of the um the logistics of it and how it's going to play out with the timing and not actually directly receiving any funds so yeah that's what i got on that story all right well now i'm just kind of sad <laughs> i'm sorry i should have okay said something beforehand it's a it's it's mostly good it is i wouldn't maybe invest in drug companies personally they seem a little scummy but yeah yeah it also uh the title of your story made me think of when i was um when i was a 10 year old and still deeply into country music Mm -hmm. and sugarland had a song called settling at 10 years old, obviously, I know everything that I want in life, and I knew that I would never settle. So that, that song spoke to me. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. All right. So 
my ne- my next story is kind of just like a very very brief synopsis of the life of Jackie Mason, who is one of America's more well-known comics in the mid 20th century. So I just wanted to go over a quick rundown of his life and his accomplishments. And once again, going back to like my pride project, just because we highlight certain individuals on this podcast does not mean that we necessarily uh, align with their beliefs or their um, you know, their likes and dislikes. So I just want to put that out there that neither Annabelle or I necessarily endorse this gentleman, uh, because during my research, I did find that, you know, if he were still alive and that's not a dig, that's just plain fact. Um, I don't think we would have been friends, but that's okay. Okay. I'm excited to hear this. Okay. So Jackie Mason was born Yakov Mosh Maza, on June 9th, 1928, in one of my favorite towns ever, Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Michigan. Wisconsin. Oh, darn it. I'm sorry. Okay. It, Michigan. It's okay. I kind of thought it was, I think, well, Michigan has, no, wait, that's Minnesota. We don't know anything about <laughs> the Midwest. We're not in the Midwest. Sorry. We're not up to date on that geography. It's no, okay. But I love the name Sheboygan. It's just that's a fun one. Um, He was the fourth and last son in a family of very strict Orthodox Jews. Mm -hmm. His father, grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, and eventually three of his brothers were all rabbis. Okay. So it's it's very deeply rooted in the family history, you know, kind of, kind of suggested, you know, like, hey, hey, nudge, nudge this might be what you're about to do with your life. So (laughs) I wrote under that line, so he didn't have much of a chance. (laughs) And I mean that as, you know, it was to be expected that he would follow in his footsteps. Not that he had a bad chance of life just because he was a rabbi. That is not what I'm saying. Right. the family business. Exactly. Yes. Just like um, personally, uh, my father, my mother, my grandmother, my aunt, and my cousin all worked in the school industry like the education industry does that mean I followed in their footsteps no I did not so anyways um when he was five his family moved to the lower east side of Manhattan so that he and his siblings could pursue a yeshiva education and I would like to apologize ahead of time if I mispronounce any of these Yiddish words so I apologize um he worked as a busboy at resorts in the Borscht Belt in the Catskills as a teenager are you familiar with the Borscht Belt not actually it's just this area of the Catskill Mountains in like northern New York that were very well known as like vacationing spots like dirty dancing oh yeah that's Catskills gotcha yes um of this experience as a teenager uh Jackie Mason once said quote 20 minutes at the Pearl Lake Hotel I broke all the dishes (laughs) they made me a lifeguard but I can't swim, I told the owner. Well, don't tell the guest, he says. <laughs> he's going drowned. He's like, I'm being set up to fail here. Anyways, in 1953, he graduated with a double major of English and sociology from the City College of New York and was officially ordained as a rabbi at the age of 25. Nice. Yes. 
Um, he led congregations in both North Carolina and Pennsylvania. And fun fact, not really, but the town in which he led a congregation in Pennsylvania is the hometown of one of my former co-workers, as well as the birthplace of Arnold Palmer. Hey. Fun facts. I enjoy Arnold Palmer's. Yes. <laughs> I meant the person. <laughs> Well, I know, but the drink that was named for his legacy, of course. I know, I know. I just I thought that was funny. Um, three years later, his father's death prompted Mason to resign from his position and become a comedian because he, he had mentioned previously, like, he was telling jokes all throughout his um, life as a rabbi. And he even once was quoted as saying, like, I would tell so many jokes during my sessions that even like some gentiles would come in just to hear my jokes really yeah okay well i guess if you're a rabbi and you you kind of have a public speaking platform yeah now that i think about it it seems like a somewhat natural progression of careers and it's always like i always appreciate um religious speakers that are able to like keep it light and airy in their um speeches and whatnot because if it's just death 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 and despair you know you're gonna lose me eventually yeah exactly that's just me um he worked at many new york city nightclubs making as much as ten thousand dollars a week which would you like to guess how much that is concurrent to nowadays um this was in the 40s in the 50s and the 60s Okay, um, bury the one, um, I'm kidding. I don't, I don't know what the conversion rate is. <laughs> uh, 60,000? $83,000 a week. Wow. That's pretty good. As a comedian. Yeah. That He's is raking it in. Really though. Um, he worked on the Steve Allen show, the Tonight Show, the Perry Como show, the Dean Martin show, and the Gary Moore show. So a lot of white, white men with their own Uh-huh. I knew that was coming. <laughs> yes. um, he was advised to take elocution, lesson, elocution lessons to rid him of his very heavy Jewish accent, but he refused. He was like, this is who I am. This is real. This is me. I'm not changing it. Exactly how I'm supposed to sound. I'm going to let the light shine on me. Also, does your cup say TikTok? does sorry i just noticed that and i was like wait a second i'm not a zoomer but oh okay all right i have a tiktok cup hit her up guys plug it what is it i don't post anything well shit girl (laughs) i'm trying to get you followers at abel self seven there we go uh this is still not on tiktok by the way Say what? Melissa is still not on TikTok, by the way. I'm not. I'm holding out. I really am. For what? Huh? What you holding out for? I don't know. I just like, I fear that I'm going to become addicted to it. And I'm trying to like step further away from my phone. Like, obviously I love um, technology and what it does for me, but I'm trying to like read more and keep my eyes up, I should say. I respect it. Mm -hmm. I also haven't posted a YouTube video on my channel in months. Um, that's going to make a return now that I'm officially settled in my new place, but look forward to that in the future. Anyways, um, he made several appearances on the Ed Sullivan show during the 1960s, but 
On October 18, 1964, he allegedly gave Sullivan the middle excuse me, I'm sorry. He allegedly gave Sullivan the middle finger while on air. Do we know why? Well, apparently Sullivan was standing behind the camera during his set and he was reportedly letting him know um, that he only had two minutes left. He was holding up two fingers and he had to cut his act short because the program was about to cut away to a impromptu speech by Lyndon Johnson at the time, like the president, like obviously you got to cut that stuff off. I work in television. I know this stuff. And Jackie Mason went on to say that he did not realize what the middle finger um, gesture meant at the time. Like that's what he claimed. We don't know if that's necessarily true, but it ended up having a very heavy toll on his career. Um, he began working the joke into his acts to make fun of the situation, but in order to clear his name, he ended up having to file a libel suit on the grounds that Sullivan had defamed him at the New York City Supreme, or not city, New York Supreme Court. That court dismissed most of Mason's complaint. Both him and Sullivan appealed to the New York Supreme Court Appellate Division, which ended up reinstating three additional causes of action against Sullivan in June of 1966. Okay. And he was subsequently banned from the show for a period of time as he was cited as being, quote, too unpredictable. Like they were like, we have no idea what he could do. He could start shouting obscenities. Like I'm just paraphrasing. Um, Jackie Mason was then branded as unreliable, volatile, and obscene. And he failed to get substantial TV work for the next two decades. Right, row. Yeah. Um, Sullivan did publicly apologize two years later, but obviously the damage was done. He later appeared on the show five times before the show was taken off air. And about the situation, he was quoted as saying, quote, it took 20 years to overcome what happened in one minute. Which is just like, I don't know, something about sentences like that, it just holds the power of time and how you're actions can very easily speak louder than your voice so right he made his broadway debut in a play titled a teaspoon every four hours in 1969 um he held a broadway record of 97 previews for the show before it closed after its initial opening performance apparently oh okay that's interesting um his record was then broken by spider-man turn off the dark that was like over 180 preview performances do you remember that whole scandal of the spider-man musical yeah not really i mean it was kind of a failed attempt at a wasn't it i don't know much about this no it was it was it was very much a failure it was just there were too many like acrobatics involved and people ended up getting hurt, like both actors and like audience members. Like there were multiple incidents before it ended up closing. So Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark is just like a very sore spot in Broadway history. Mm -hmm. um, anyways, he also appeared in films such as The Jerk, History of the World Part One and Caddyshack Part Two. Okay. He returned to Broadway in 1986 with The World According to Me, which was very well received. It was mostly just a one-man show of him doing his comedy on Broadway, which is becoming more of a thing like Cher, not Cher. Cher had a show on Broadway, but it wasn't like her there. 
I'm trying to think. There have been multiple um, performers lately that ha have had one man or one woman shows on Broadway, but for right now, I can't think of any. <laughs> Um, he won an Emmy for Outstanding Writing for his special called Jackie Mason on Broadway later. Once again, like I said, he starred in Caddyshack 2, and he won a primetime Emmy role for his job voicing Rabbi Hyman Krasovsky in what show, Annabelle? I, don't, I have no idea. It's okay. It's okay. Um, he, he voiced Rabbi Hyman Krasovsky on The Simpsons and. Oh, I'm sorry. I really, I've seen like two Simpsons episodes ever. Oh my God. Really? Really? Oh my gosh. I like watched it in secret as a child because I was told I couldn't watch it. And every now and then I turn it on on Disney plus just to have something going on in the background, but only like the old episodes because the new ones suck. But it's funny now knowing what I know about Jackie Mason and how he grew up in this very strict Orthodox Jewish household and he was expected to become a rabbi, but he wanted to become a comedian. It's funny because Rabbi Krastovsky is actually the father of Krusty the Clown. Okay. You, you kind of know who I'm talking about? Yeah, I think so. Okay. And it's funny because they're their storyline in The Simpsons actually very much mimics his own life. Like, Krusty was expected to become a rabbi as well, but then he chose a life of comedy and it kind of like upset his father. And they had a very like volatile relationship. And the character ended up dying, I think in like 2017 or something. And like, I know no one watches The Simpsons like religiously anymore, but I remember hearing about that because they were like, oh, a major character is going to die. But it ended up being like Krusty's dad. Not saying that Krusty's dad wasn't important, but I just found it really interesting how that like, I don't know if the role was written specifically for Jackie Mason, but something. He was, um, okay, so this is where we get into a few, a few of a, a number, not saying a lot, but a number of controversial things that Jackie Mason did during his time on this earth. He mm -hmm. referred to a former New York City mayor as well as former President Barack Obama as a derogatory Yiddish term for a black person. I'm not going to say it on air, but have that as you will. He was also, he, he counseled Israeli leaders to consider the total expulsion of Palestinians from Israel, the West Bank, as well as the Gaza Strip in 2003. So very similar to what we've been seeing lately in the news with Israeli-Palestinian conflict in the Middle East, because it's this ongoing struggle of who the land belongs to and who has a right to it. And it's, it's, it's a very deep and controversial situation to talk about, but personally, I believe that, you know, Palestinians have a right to do what they please on the land. I just wonder why we can't live in harmony, you know? Good, great question, yeah. Like, why can't we share the land? But I do, like, I do feel that Palestinians have a right to part of it, mm -hmm. at least part of it. So when I read that, I was just kind of like, ooh, ooh, I don't know how I feel about that, sir. Yeah. Um, a complicated issue. It is a very complicated issue and it cannot be settled in just one podcast episode. So therefore, we're gonna stop talking about it right now. Good point. 
<laughs> but you know, like I said, it's it's only fair that we talk about the highs and lows of a person in the public eye because you know there are certain individuals who only get positive feedback, and there are some that only get negative feedback. And it's only fair to look at both sides of each story. Right. So, with that being said, Jackie Mason died peacefully in his sleep at the age of ninety three on July twenty fourth, twenty twenty one, at Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan. In Manhattan. In Manhattan after being hospitalized for over two weeks. And when I initially saw what year he was born in, I like not lost my shit, but I was like, wow. Cause my grandfather who passed away in 2006 was also born in 1928. And it's just weird to think about like, wow, like he would have been 93 if he was still alive. So something to think about, but I'll talk about some old things. And once again, his career, like coming up in the Borscht Belt and the Catskills and working his way into a bigger mainstream um, situation, it's very reminiscent of the plot lines in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which if you guys haven't seen, it's a wonderful show and it's worth watching. Rachel Brosnahan is queen. Um, so if you want to do more research on that, have that. Very nice. Well, his non-controversial bits of his life will obviously be what most people will hopefully remember. Um, hopefully. And hopefully, uh, you know, he learned his lesson on some of those before he passed. But in any event, he was still a very famous person. We're talking about. Okay, so my final story, we're going to talk about our main man, Jay Powell here. Um, the story is called Jay Powell's Job Jeopardy. <laughs> so bear with me here. Um, the Federal Reserve Chairman or Chairwoman, as it was Janet Yellen before Jay Powell, um, they have finite terms and they kind of rotate um, on like a, I believe it's like a six year basis. Okay. Four to six years. I'd have to double check. I should have had that beforehand on my notes. So sorry about that. But uh, Jay Powell's formal ending to his current term is February 2022. So coming up in the next several months here, but he is eligible for a second term. And President Biden would either renominate Jay Powell or he would select a candidate of his own. Um, and there's a lot of debate on both sides of the aisle as well as little factions within each party of what he should do and why he should do it. And there's a lot of arguments kind of for both sides. Um, so we will kind of get into why. So Jay Powell, just a little refresher here. He was nominated and put into the role of Fed chairman by President Donald Trump. Donald Trump decided he wanted to make his own pick. Janet Yellen was eligible for another term and was doing a great job. But he decided he wanted his own guy in there, yeah. which you know, you're know you allowed to do as president. Um, you can appoint people. So. Fine. He kind of broke the pattern of renominating previous chairmans um, by not renewing Janet Yellen. Back when President Clinton was in power, he renewed Chair Fed Alan Greenspan and President Obama when he was in office renewed Ted, Ched, Fed Chairman <laughs> Ben Bernanke. Um, and those are both like very famous like legends of the Fed. They weathered some pretty serious economic crises um, and kind of helped get us through. 2008 and 2009 and gave a lot of the bank reform that we have now. Yeah. Um, they're obviously not 
perfect. There were plenty of flaws that happened with that, that the Fed could have helped with a little bit more, um, that they have certainly earned their place in, you know, Fed history for sure. Um, want to be on top? That's right. <laughs> and um, not for nothing, Jay Powell has also really dealt with some economic challenges with the COVID crisis. Yes. Um, there was an economic recession, but a lot of people like, don't even really realize it because it was very short-lived and, you know, different parts of the recession didn't pertain to a lot of people. So if you weren't seriously looking at the economy as a whole, maybe you weren't even paying attention and it could have been significantly worse, but the Fed stepped up very quickly and acted like they were supposed to by slashing rates to near zero. They started, you know, buying up government debt, stuff like that, um, things that were really helpful. Um, but a lot of people are not convinced that Jay Powell is the man for the job because of current inflation levels. How dare they? Which are high. And he does maintain like, yes, they're high, but it's transitory. Like this is, you know, the economy has been bottlenecking while people are locked away inside. And now that we're out again, whoosh. And that's why inflation has gone up because there's such a demand for things and supply for a lot of stuff is limited. There's shortages in different types of food. There's shortages in computer chips right now. I don't know if we've talked about that much on this podcast, but there's definitely greeting a big- cards. Greeting cards. Is there a shortage of those too? I don't know about greeting cards, but trading cards. Didn't you see that whole thing about what happened at like Target a few months ago? Basically baseline level. It was just like, there was a shortage or something and there were signs up around like targets across the country being like, limit one pet per person. <laughs> Hmm. No, I didn't know that, but that's interesting. Okay, so trading card crisis also. Um, but yeah, he maintains that these levels are transitory, and President Biden says he agrees with Jay Powell on that. So it kind of gives him a little vote of confidence there. So if Jay Powell took all the necessary steps with the Fed to kind of prevent a really massive economic crisis, which this very well could have turned into, yeah. where's the problem, right? He seems like he's been doing a good job. So here's the problem. It's political is the short answer. Um, oh. A lot of Democrats don't want somebody who was put up by a Republican president. Oh, funny. Yeah. Which I get it, but I don't know. There's, there's more to this. There's, he doesn't, Jay Powell obviously is a white man, you know, again, is, is, Wait, is, he is? Mm -hmm. oh. Okay. What did you think he was? I thought he was a strong black gentleman, honestly. Really? I guess I'm I'm a fake fan. Of I always Google your people. You gotta Google mine. I'm sorry. I'm a terrible co-host. He goes by J, like J A Y. I don't know if he's how. He's he's a white man. He's very much like a person. I'm so sorry. Conservative guy. No, that's okay. <laughs> um. But like, because he's a white man, he obviously doesn't bring any sort of diversity on a gender or a person of color. And he's yeah, a straight- that does make more sense. Yeah. Um, which to be fair, a lot of the economic and banking sector and finance sector is white men, which I can attest to as I work in that industry. And it's white, white men. White man, whoa, 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 white man. <laughs> That's right. Um, a lot of people also think that he's been too soft with regulating Wall Street that he hasn't really done much there. Um, and he has a Wall Street background. So it kind of makes sense that he's not doing too much with that. And some people also think 
that he hasn't really done anything for climate change, which when I first read this, I was like, why does the federal bank need to do anything for climate change? Like that doesn't seem like it goes together for me. Like I guess in theory, we're all responsible for climate change, but it just seems like it's someone else's problem. Like the EPAs, you know what I mean? Yeah, if anyone. But reading more into it, um, the Fed did kind of prop up the fossil fuels industry during COVID when demand for oil and gas was really low. So I guess if they wanted to do more to fight climate change, they would, you know, let the industry struggle um, and just hope that people would seek different alternatives. But that's a huge industry and I don't necessarily blame them for propping it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my take at least. Um, and Jay Powell, as I said, is ex-Wall Street and private equity. So he's kind of part of that capital E establishment of people who tend to go in and out of that position without, you know, they kind of sit in their ivory tower and, you know, it's, that's what a lot of progressives say and they're not necessarily a big fan of that. Um, So yeah, but positives of keeping him in the Fed chairman job, they kind of include the fact that he really did prevent the USA from getting into a major financial crisis because they cut rates so quickly and they still are low to this day. Um, And historically, the main challenge of the Federal Reserve is always trying to balance the unemployment rate with inflation, because they tend to be very, like, counter-correlated. So, like, as inflation goes up, unemployment tends to go down and vice versa. So they're kind of inversely related, Um, which is tricky because we don't want high unemployment, but we don't want high, or we want high unemployment but we don't want high inflation. So a little tricky there, but this Fed board has been a little bit more focused on keeping employment levels really high. They don't want people out of work, which progressives tend to think is a better goal and a better thing to focus on than the inflation levels. So they do support them for that reason, um, which is definitely good. And it kind of aligns a little bit more with President Biden's goals too. He's more concerned about getting people back to work than I don't know, like inflation is obviously still important, but it's transitory people. That's what Jay Powell says. Um, a little bit more here, if he were to get replaced, kind of the word on the street that the top pick is a woman named Lael Brainard. Um, she is been, she's been with the Federal Reserve as a governor since 2014. Um, and before that she worked in the US Treasury Department and was an economist who worked in the Obama administration, obviously a woman, so that's also kind of good for diversity, which is cool. Um, But there's just a lot kind of to consider here. I mean, a Fed chairman change is a big deal. Like markets are gonna react either positively or negatively, but probably negatively if he does get replaced, because the one thing that investors really hate is uncertainty. And when there's a position change like that, no one really knows it's going to happen. And if policies and stuff like that will change. So investors panic and they tend to dump their stocks. So there could potentially be a big sell-off. And then addition to that, Jay Powell is already pretty popular with Congress. And you obviously have to push your nomination through Congress. You have to get a minimum of 50 senators to confirm a nomination for the chairman, which Jay Powell would easily get because... Republicans like him and a good amount of Democrats do as well. So it wouldn't be rocking the boat, especially because he's doing a good job. So we'll have to see what happens. I read several articles on this and about half of them think that 
this is it for him. And about half of them think that it would behoove President Biden to keep Jay Powell in power. So do you have any personal predictions, Alyssa, based on what I just said? Not really, um, because once again, I don't claim to be well-versed in this type of thing, such as Annabelle is, especially since I didn't know the ethnicity of my number one Jay Powell. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm just gonna leave it up to fate and manifest that the right person maintains or gets the job and hope for the best for this country. I think that's a good answer. I like that. Thank you. I'm it's looking at a pageant now. <laughs> very diplomatic of you. Yes. But I think um, I honestly could, I see both sides of the argument and I understand what progressives are saying and I understand obviously Jay Powell being a recurring character on this podcast, we're big fans of him, even if we don't know his ethnicity. But um, I personally am just a big proponent of certainty and ability. So especially when someone has earned their place and has been put through a pretty hellish circumstance with COVID, I think Jay Powell's definitely earned the right to another term. I think he's put the time in. and there will certainly be times down the line where there will be other people who are able to step up to the plate. Um, but I think it's also important to not have a big change because we're still in this pandemic globally um, and we need someone who already has the experience and already has been working on it to kind of continue the plan in my opinion. So I, I think Jay Powell should stay, um, but we'll see what happens. We'll definitely keep you guys updated. They tend to announce picks for the upcoming term around like the summertime so if we haven't heard yet it could be in the next few weeks to a month or so so we'll let you guys know but we'll see what happens do you have your smile segment Alyssa? i do thank you for remembering of course, honey. Uh, so this week the love of my life dolly parton yes celebrated her husband's birthday by going back to a promise she made in the 70s and 80s. I can't remember exactly when, but Dolly did pose for Playboy back in the day. I don't know if you guys were familiar with it, but she said that she would also pose for Playboy when she was 75. Wow. Okay. Well, Dolly is currently 75, but Playboy magazine is no more. Right. So she was like, okay, my husband's birthday is coming up. We're celebrating, you ready for this? 57 years together. That's impressive. I don't think that's necessarily all married time because once again, I'm not good at math. I remember they were married in like 66, I believe, but they've been together for a very long time. So she was like, what can I do to like follow up on my promise that I made and also make my husband's day. Well, Miss Parton decided that she was going to do a DIY Playboy shoot. And she got in the little cute bunny outfit, little cuffs. Oh, I know you did because I probably like spammed my Twitter feed with it because it was adorable. Perhaps. And she was just like, he thinks I'm the hottest girl ever. And I just wanted to thank him. And she showed he's Carl her husband he's very very out of the public eye like he does not come around to like movie premieres or like album drops he he very much is like that's her thing 
You know, my thing is sitting at home and supporting her from the sidelines and we support that. So she showed a little picture of him, the back of his head and her presenting this plaque that had her original Playboy cover and her new DIY one. And I just thought it was the cutest thing ever. And um, my other love of my life, Meg the Stallion actually like quote tweeted it and was like, hot girl Dolly, <laughs> ah, my faves, just, uh, just celebrating love and feeling yourself and feeling your oats. And yeah, that made me really happy this week. What about you? I like it. Um, hmm. I have to think about this for a minute. It also doesn't have to be anything that happened like in like the world. It could be something personal that happened to you and you can tell as many or as little details as you please. Well, I'm a big sports fan and the Olympics kicked off this week. So that was probably the most exciting thing for me. Um, you know, obviously it looks a little different this year without spectators and some of the pomp and circumstance that goes with the Olympics, but it's still really exciting for the athletes that they get to go out there and compete and, you know, hopefully bring glory and honor to their country as well as themselves because they've worked really hard for it. Um, I can't wait to see Simone Biles just dominate and crush everybody. Um, when is she coming? Like, when is her day? It should be pretty soon. Um, I think qualifiers are in the next day or so. And the Olympics are always rough on a timeline perspective because Tokyo is 13 hours ahead of where we are on the East Coast, which you know, if they do morning events over there, it's not so bad because I'm at home watching TV, but you know, some other time of day, it's a little bit harder, but um, yeah, I would say that was probably my, my thing this week that I'm excited about. A Georgia Bulldog brought home one of the first gold medals for Team USA. Correct. Chase Kalish, he's a swimmer. I've met him. No, but I have met him. I've met him twice. Yes. I, I went up to him at a bar and was like, I'm a huge fan. And he, he literally said, why? <laughs> I was like, because you're an amazing athlete. And he was like, I guess. Like, he was so humble about it. He was also, like, pretty drunk, so. Still, like, there are some people that can get really, really, like, full of themselves when they're drunk. So we stand a humble king. Yes. You go, Chase Kalish. We hope you, you can go, home. Chase Kalish. I was actually, like, it was funny. We were watching, like, some male gymnastics last night, me, my brother, and my sister-in-law. And I, like, mentioned Chase Kalish to him. I was like, yeah, he's a Georgia Bulldog. And he's, like, at the Olympics. He... Correct me if I'm wrong, but I did say silver at Rio. I think that's right. Okay. So I don't have his history on the top of my head, but I think he's improved for sure. But I was like, he placed in Rio last time. And then like right after I left their place, you got you, you and our friend Hannah were like hitting up the group chat and you were like, you yeah, believe this. <laughs> also, because I have to throw them in at every chance I get. Um, you know how like in the opening ceremony, each country like got like three little things to like represent their nation's prosperity and whatnot. Fun fact, South Korea put a picture of this palace that was built eons and eons ago. That was actually, I, I wish I knew the history. I was trying to find it just now, but I can't find it. I'm so sorry. I'm not trying to be oh my god white girl all over like Asian culture but it was really cool they showed this picture of this palace and then they showed a picture of this general who was a war hero and he has this giant statue in one of the big cities in South Korea and then they showed a picture of BTS 
<laughs> the three markers of their country, the three things that they're most proud of. It's like the general BTS. <laughs> The pride and joy of South Korea. I mean, hey, if they're one of the big three, though, that's impressive. It is, yeah. Honestly, I'm like, yeah, BTS gave away. <laughs> well, thank you guys for being patient with us while we took a couple weeks off so Alyssa could get her move on. But we are back, hopefully better than ever. We'll be back next week with more stories and updates. And we hope everyone has a wonderful week. Yay!